Well, hello again, everyone. Thank you for joining us, and thank you to those of you who are watching online. If you haven't met me, my name is Caleb. I'm the pastor at Cross of Life, and we're in a series called A Season in the Minors, our summer sermon series, just walking through a handful of the minor prophets from the Old Testament. And this week, we're going into the book of Joel. So as I dug into Joel this week, uh, I realized something kind of unique about Joel. It's not very unique. Maybe you found this if you were reading Joel with us this week. Unlike other books of the prophets that list the reign of the king during which they're writing or preaching, or give actually even a, a time frame, Joel doesn't tell us when he writes. We have pretty good reason to believe it was probably around the 8th century BC, but there's some good arguments for a little bit later. And unlike a book like, for example, Hosea that we studied last week, where the prophet calls out specific sins like a lack of faithfulness, a lack of love, a lack of knowledge, Joel doesn't call out specific sins. So what's the value of this not very specific book of prophecy? Well, the beauty of a book that is not particularly specific, where we don't know exactly everything about the original context into which it was written, is that instead of answering very narrow questions, it can answer really broad questions. And there are two big questions that the book of Joel answers for us. Two questions that regardless of whether you're a Christian or you're just exploring Christianity, you need to have an answer to. Those two big questions are why is there so much evil in the world? And what is the Christian God going to do about it? Why is there so much evil in the world and what is the Christian God going to do about it? And those are the two questions that Joel is going to answer for us today. So the book of Joel starts out with God talking about a locust swarm. Uh, we don't really have locust swarms in southern Ontario, not something we struggle with. Uh, but in the Middle East and North Africa and Eastern Africa, where presumably the first readers of Joel's prophecy would have lived, locust swarms are a problem. Even right now, you can look on the news, the country of Kenya is struggling with a locust plague. Uh, but since I, I know that you don't struggle with locust swarms here in southern Ontario, I just wanted to read you a quote um, from one author who was talking about the severity of locust swarms and what they would mean for a culture. Uh, she wrote, The female desert locust lays eggs under the sand in pods of about 100. There may be as many as 100 such egg pods per square foot. When the insects hatch, young hoppers may number up to 1,000 per square foot at any one time. The locusts eat all kinds of plants, not only the leaves, but even the tender branches and bark. A locust weighing 3.5 grams will eat its entire weight each day, and a swarm may number a billion insects, and a hundred swarms may be on the move during a plague. A swarm may cover up to 200 miles in a day. You can actually watch videos of this on YouTube. You can search locust swarm, and there'll be like farmers who've got nets, you know, the kind of nets like you use in your pool to like get leaves out. They're swinging these nets, and they're catching locusts by the hundreds, but they're not even making a dent in the swarm of locusts that's around them. And for a culture, like Joel's culture was, this could be absolutely destructive. It would wipe out a crop for an entire harvest season. That's the image that God wanted his uh, readers from Joel to have in mind as he talked about something equally destructive, in fact, in many ways more destructive, 
an army that was coming. An army that would crush Israel in the same way that a locust swarm would come and completely wipe out a crop. Now, what does that have to do with us? (laughs) Why do we care about some locust swarm in the Middle East in probably the 8th century BC and an army that came after Israel that was sort of like locusts? I mean, if there's anything that's not actually applicable to us, it's got to be that, right? Unless Jesus tells us it is. Uh, And that's why we read Revelation 9 uh, earlier in the service. While we're not really sure exactly when this locust swarm came on Israel, and we're not exactly sure which army Joel was talking about, and we don't know all the details about what that army did to Israel when they came, we know what Jesus thought about this text. Because he used it when he showed his vision of what the world world looks like from God's point of view in Revelation when he showed it to John. So I want to walk back through uh, that text from Revelation and show you what Jesus thinks about it. But to do that, I'm going to have to do something that I absolutely hate, and that's walk through Revelation without proving to you every single point of reference in the scripture. I just don't have time for it. So I'm going to assert some things as I read the text, and you're just going to have to trust me. Uh, If you want me to explain it more deeply, email me during the week, and I'd be glad to do that for you. But for the sake of our time today, I'm going to keep it kind of short. Jesus says to, or shows John uh, that the fifth angel sounded his trumpet and John says he saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. Uh, So the church has pretty universally understood this star to be representative of Satan, a good angel whom God created at the beginning of the earth who rebelled against him and was thrown out of heaven. It says that that star, that angel, Satan, was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. Now, when you read abyss, you might immediately think of hell, uh, but that's not really what the Greek word abuso meant. It was a word that was used to describe places of chaos. In fact, most often it was used to talk about like being out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea where you couldn't see anything. There was no points of reference. The waves were crashing everywhere. It was kind of an abyss. So when we hear the word abyss, hear chaos. And chaos is the opposite of order, And God created order, right? So when you hear that he's given the key to the shaft of the abyss, he is given the ability to unlock evil. To unlock evil into the world. And that's exactly what he does. It says, when he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke of a gigantic furnace, and the sun and sky were darkened by the smoke of the abyss. So when he unlocks evil into the world, it ruins everything. In the same way that a completely overcast day, or if you've ever experienced smog, it's terrible. God says his world was big, bright, and beautiful until evil was unleashed into it. The text continues, Out of the smoke, locusts, catch the reference, came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. So Jesus says this evil is unlocked from the abyss, and it comes out sort of like a swarm of locusts might come out. 
That evil comes and it swarms around and stings people, like the sting of a scorpion. If you've ever been stung by a scorpion, you would know it probably won't kill you, but it'll hurt really badly for a really long time. That sort of pain comes from evil, right? The evil that is in the world, it is what causes pain in our life. And Jesus says here that that locust swarm comes not to eat plants or trees or grass like a normal locust swarm, but to torture people for five months. Five months is just the lifespan of a locust. And, and he says that they were, <clears throat> excuse me, they were allowed to torture those who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So without fully explaining this, the seal of God on your forehead is your baptism. Uh, it's God saying, you are mine, I mark you with, my water, with water and my word. Now, you might think to yourself, okay, but evil is painful for Christians too, isn't it? That's true. But what God tells us in other parts of the Bible is that pain comes into the Christian's life with a purpose. God always uses pain in the Christian's life either to bless someone else or to grow the faith of the person who is suffering, or usually both. But for those who are not Christian, evil has no purpose. It is simply suffering. It is simply pain. And so people will try to seek to escape it. They'll seek death, but it will elude them, which we see. Increases in suicide, and even if someone wouldn't kill themselves, increases in trying to escape, whether that's through a substance or through an experience or through just shutting off your brain as you watch something mindless on TV. The pain around people is so great that they're trying in every way to get away from it, but they can't. The text continues, the locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. So this locust army, it comes with something that looks like crowns of gold on their head. So they aren't actually crowns of gold, which means they're not rulers, but they act like rulers. And isn't that what you see in the world around you? It seems that evil is ruling, Right? You know from Scripture that God is in control of all things and that he uses evil for his purposes. But when you look out at the world, you don't see that all the time, do you? you? The army's faces resembled human faces. Yes, Satan is the one who unlocked the key to the shaft of the abyss and he and his demons are working at all times to lead us to sin. But who actually, actually perpetrates those sins? Who actually brings evil into the world? Us. People who look just like me. People who look just like you. He continues, their hair was like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. So it says the evil is attractive like a woman with beautiful hair. But when you give in to it, it bites down hard like a lion. He says they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. In other words, they looked impenetrable, unstoppable. And the sound of their wings was like that of the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. It was all around you. You couldn't see it, but you knew it was there. You couldn't point to it because it was all around you. You could hear it. He says, then they had tails with stingers like scorpions, and their tails had the power to torment people for five months. And they had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon, that is, the destroyer, which is a word that is used to talk about Satan. So what does Jesus say? He says, as you look at this locust swarm, because you are not an 8th century BC Christian, think of it in terms of the evil that is in the world. 
The evil that Satan unlocked as he rebelled against God, the evil that is perpetrated by people like you and me as we are pulled along by the desires of our sinful nature and the temptations of Satan, that evil that causes pain in all of our lives regularly. Think of that army like that. If you look at the world today, that is what we see. A world that is full of evil, that is hurting people regularly. So what do we do about it? Maybe as you look out at the world and you see things like an increase of suicide or corrupt governments or racism or sexism or the hurting of children in things like human trafficking and abusive relationships, you look out at the world and you say, why is it so bad? You're at a loss. You feel like a farmer taking a net trying to catch locusts in a swarm of a million. So most people will try to legislate it away. And I don't mean just using government legislation. I mean they'll, they'll use rules to try to fix it. Uh, they'll, they'll take either a governmental rule or a rule that they've made up in their head and they'll say, if everyone just follows this rule, then this evil will go away. We have to admit it. I will admit it. I've thought about the evil that is in the world right now and thought that if we could just change the rules or people would just follow my rules, then everything would be right. Isn't that what you've thought? But that can't work. Because one of the things that we know to be true about the way humans work is that laws don't fix things. Laws just curb things for a while. One of the greatest thinkers of the late 19th and early, early 20th century was G.K. Chesterton. And he wrote this in a letter to the editor about how evil is t- was taking over his society at that time and what he thought would actually solve it. He wrote this, Political and economic reform will not make us good and happy, but until this odd time period, nobody ever expected that they would. Now I, get there, I know there is a feeling that government can do anything. But if government could do anything, nothing would exist except government. Men have found the need of other forces. Religion, for example, existed in order to do what law could not do, to track crime to its primary sin and the man to his back bedroom. The church endeavored to institute a machinery of pardon. The state only has a machinery of punishment. The state can only free society from the criminal. The church sought to free the criminal from the crime. Abolish religion if you like. Throw everything on secular government if you like. But do not be surprised if a machinery that was never meant to do anything but secure external decency and order fails to secure internal honesty and peace. You understand what he's saying? You can make all the rules that you want. You can try all you want to change people's behavior, but it will not ultimately change their heart. It will not ultimately change the source of the evil that is in them. And we know this to be true, don't we? We look out at the world at something that's happening right now, something that our society is struggling with, which is racism, right? Racism is an evil thing. It is a sin. It is something that God hates. But as you think about how to try to solve the problem of racism in our country, you realize it's very complex, and there are a lot of different layers you have to go to to actually solve it. 
I mean, I just put together a brief list of things that you would have to work on in order to solve racism in our country. You have to work on issues of poverty, education, religion, history, morality, public health, employment opportunities, family structure, cultural values, immigration, governmental structure, capitalism, and policing. And every single one of those issues has their own evil underlying them, right? How do you solve this? How do you solve something so complex and so painful as evil in the world? Well, God gives you an answer through the prophet Joel. Uh, He gave it to us in chapter 2. He said, even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. He says, repent. I see that phrase, return to God, a lot on social media. People will say things like, if only our country would return to God, and then we would be fixed, everything would be right. I hope they mean repentance, but more often than not, I get the feeling they mean if everyone would just start acting like Christians, then everything would be right. You know what that is? That's legislating morality. It's trying to get people to follow the rules and actually getting them to change their heart. So God says, return to me, repent to me. What does that mean? Well, he tells you, fasting, weeping, and mourning. What is fasting? Fasting is, in a proper sense, of course, giving up something for a short period of time. But in a more broad sense, it is simply disrupting your life in order to repent. It is messing with your normal flow of living in order to repent. It's not saying, I'm going to try harder to repent. It's actually making real change in your life in order to repent. So what does that look like practically for you? I don't know. It it might look like adjusting your schedule so that you can be here every Sunday. You can be in the Lord's Supper with us before worship. It might mean adjusting how you spend your money so that you can support the ministry of the gospel through our church or support people who need it through your generosity in the community. It may look like readdressing your priorities for what you do with your time during the week or what you put your kids in so that they can be focused on God's word. I don't know, it's going to look different for every person. How are you going to disrupt your life in order to come back to God? I don't know, but I will tell you this. uh, The level to which you are dedicated to something is shown by what you're willing to sacrifice for it. I'll say that again, the The level to which you are dedicated to something is shown by what you're willing to sacrifice for it. Some of you have kids, you'd be willing to die for your kids, right? What would you be willing to sacrifice to hear God's word every Sunday? What would you be willing to sacrifice to be in Bible study during the week? What would you be willing to sacrifice that you can be in a life group with somebody to encourage them in their walk of faith? I don't know, I think that's something you need to wrestle with. What about weeping? Weeping is a public, obvious, audible show of sorrow, right? God calls us to repent, and not just to repent in a private way in our quiet little room, but to repent to other people. One of the worst lies that we have believed in North American Christianity is that if we can be Christians by ourselves without being connected to a Christian community, frankly, the Bible just doesn't allow it. God calls us to repent to other people. Now, you can repent to me. 
I promise you as your pastor, I will keep that confidential. Or you can repent to somebody in your life group, somebody you trust, but repent publicly. Get that sin out there so that it can be forgiven. And then what is mourning? Mourning is not obvious, but it is a deep-seated, constant understanding, consciousness of sorrow. Different than weeping, which is obvious, mourning is underlying. A constant understanding that I am sinful. That my sin, my human face, has brought evil into the world. How do you do that? Through constant and consistent practice. Some of you know I'm training for a half marathon. Not a real half marathon. I'm just going to run 13.1 miles and maybe my wife will cheer for me at the end or something like that. But um, I've just needed it to keep myself kind of going through this pandemic. But I'll tell you, the first time I went running, I did not consider myself a runner. I considered myself a hot mess. But after months and years of regularly running, I started to consider myself a runner. It was a deep-seated, underlying understanding of myself. Do you have that same deep-seated, underlying understanding of yourself that you are evil by nature? That it's not those people out there who are causing the evil. Even though they are, it is first and foremost me. How could that change your attitude? How could that change the way you look at the world? How could that change the way you interact with your family or at your workplace? In the first of his 95 theses that he nailed to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany in the 16th century, Martin Luther wrote that the life of a Christian should be a life of repentance. And when people interact with us, in the same way they could pick us out and say, you're an introvert, or you're an athlete, or you're a gamer, they could also say about us, you are someone who is eager to repent. You are someone who is looking first for your own fault before someone else's fault. I remember when I was growing up, my dad uh, was a pastor, I guess still is a pastor, and he told me a story about a marriage counseling session that he did with a woman, which, by the way, he didn't share with me her information because pastors don't do that, but he told me the story to illustrate this point. He was talking with this woman, and she had a whole bunch of really valid concerns about her husband and her husband's behavior, and after she listed them all out, my dad said, that, that seems like valid concerns. Uh, can I ask you if you were to break down your conflict with your husband into a certain percentage that is his fault and a certain percentage that is your fault, what would those percentages be? She said, well, 90% his fault, 10% my fault. My dad said next, she didn't like. I said, okay, let's focus on the 10% then. She hated it. She couldn't stand it. She stormed out of the room because she didn't want to deal with her own evil. She didn't want to deal with your own, her own sin. She wanted to deal with his sin. As we look out at the evil on the world, yes, it is evil. Yes, they are valid concerns. But are we willing to at least first say evil starts with us? That it's not the conservatives, it's not the liberals, it's not the white people, it's not the black people, it's not the poor people or the rich people or the undereducated or the overeducated. It starts here. That's what God calls us to. He says it in the next verse through Joel. It says, rend your heart and not your garments. Don't make it a show, make it a lifestyle. Because when you repent to God, he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. 
You know, it's so hard for us to repent sometimes, isn't it? It's so hard to look at ourselves as the ones who are wrong. But for Christians, it's absolutely ridiculous not to. Like the Christian faith says, when you repent, Jesus gives you all of his righteousness and takes all of your sin on himself and dies on the cross so that when God sees you, he sees absolute perfection, the same perfection that Jesus had. He would say about you, you are my loved daughter or son. With you, I am completely pleased. Wouldn't we want to repent like every five minutes? That's the kind of God we have, but the struggle is that we don't want to make the naked admission that we're not good. So God says, as, as long as we continue to not repent, the evil will continue to come. But the beautiful thing is that in Joel's time, those people did repent. Later in the second chapter, it says, The Lord was jealous for his people and took pity on his land. And the Lord replied to them, I am sending you grain, new wine, and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. And I will never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. Now, we don't know exactly how this happened in the original context. It seems that there was an army that came in and did some destruction to Israel, but that the people repented and God had mercy on them. And he somehow satisfied them fully and made this promise of no longer being an object of scorn. But even though we don't know the original context and exactly what was happening, we do know the ultimate context in which this happened. And we know it because this was the text that Peter chose to preach on on Pentecost. You remember the story? Jesus has died and risen and has ascended into heaven. And it is 10 days later, the apostles are all in the upper room for fear of being killed just like Jesus was killed. When the Holy Spirit comes down on them, they see tongues of fire above their heads and they start to speak in other languages. They walk outside, start preaching, and the people hear them in their own languages and they say, those guys are Galileans. That doesn't make sense. They're not supposed to speak my language. But then they started saying something pretty crazy. But the day of the Lord had come and it came when Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, that's why they said they were drunk. Do you remember the story? Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Not because they were speaking in different languages. If someone came up to you who didn't look like they spoke your language and they started spoke, speaking your language, you wouldn't think they're drunk. But you would think they're drunk if they started saying, yeah, a guy rose from the dead 10 days ago. But Peter says, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. No, this, what is happening right now, is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he quotes Joel too. Where Joel writes, afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. 
Now, I'm not going to work through all the ins and outs of that text. You'll have to come back on Pentecost Sunday, but I'll give you the main overview. Peter says, There was a great and dreadful day of the Lord that was prophesied by Joel, a day when the sun would turn to darkness, kind of like it did for three hours while a man hung on the cross. And amazing signs would happen, like rocks splitting and people rising from the dead and a curtain being torn in two, not to mention all the miracles that Jesus did in his life. And the result would be, and afterward, the Holy Spirit would be poured out so that people could speak the words of God, which those 11 apostles did, and which the church did from there on, and which it continues to do today. The reason you repent It's because Jesus has taken the dreadful day of the Lord, the destruction of the plagues of locusts of evil, into himself so that you can go free from it. You may still experience evil, this side of heaven. But because of what Jesus did and because of the faith that you have, which which is because of the words you have heard prophesied to you, you will be saved. There is deliverance on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. A man was dead, but he is alive again. And he's coming back. And that's what Joel ends with. In Joel 3, he says, Let the nations be roused. Let them advance to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. The evil that is happening, God will judge it. It will not be left unpunished. Someday God will come back and he will give every person exactly what they deserve for their evil. It should terrify you a little bit because you know the evil that is in your heart. But, but then Joel says, The sun and the moon will be darkened. The sun will no, stars will no longer shine. And the Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble. But the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Paul tells us that we are Israel. We have the same faith as Abraham, the faith that trusts in God to be our Savior. There's a lot of evil in the world. Some of it's done by me. Some of it's done by you. Some of it's done out there by them. God's going to make it right. And the only way he can is by leveling all evil judged, but then also being merciful to those who are in him, for whom he is a refuge, a stronghold. Look forward to that last day when all things will be made right. And until then, repent. And before we leave, I want to get really practical with you because Joel gets really practical with you. When he calls people to repent, he calls out four specific groups and says, you specifically think about repentance. They're all right in the first chapter. He says, hear this, you elders. Wake up, you drunkards. Despair, you farmers. And put on sackcloth, you priests. What do those groups represent for us? Who are the elders? Those who are getting nearer to the end of their life? Who see the evil in the world around them? And usually, more often than not, don't think it's their problem anymore. Repent. And who are the drunkards? Those who have excess, enough to get drunk. People who are wealthy. People who have more than they need. It's hard for those people to repent because they feel like they can pretty much pull it off themselves. They have what they need. 
We're not dependent really on God. Maybe dependent on him when we need him, but not all the time. Repent. The farmers, those whose crops would have been destroyed by the locust plague, if you have value in this world that you are depending on, it will be taken from you. Repent. And you priests, people like me, repent. Because it's easy to stand up here and tell you everything is good, everything's okay, you're all not that bad, and God's okay with it when you are a little bad. But it's hard to stand up here and tell you the honest truth that we cause evil. The good news is that when we cause evil, our God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And so we rely on that. So live your life as with the attitude of repentance. Work for good in the world out of that repentance. Not because you need to, to earn God's favor, but because he's given you his favor and has unleashed you to be a, fo- a force for good in the world. And on those days when everything seems like it's falling apart, when you're not sure how it could possibly be fixed, remember that there is a day coming where God will make it right. And you will be part of the good side of that making it right because you are in Jesus and the Lord is a refuge for you. God be praised for that. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the locust swarm of evil is around us daily and we suffer under it. We feel the pain of the evil that we cause, the pain of the evil that others cause. We know that it's easy for us to try to make everyone change or even make ourselves change to make it work. But we need you. We need you to come and step into our lives. That the power of your Holy Spirit work faith in our hearts that relies on you, constantly repentant, looking for the good of our neighbor, not in their behavior, but in their faith. We ask these things in your name. Amen.